2 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll look at verses 10 through 16 this morning. Um, earlier this week, I thought that I was going to get arrested. True story. Recently, I was summoned into jury duty, and I totally forgot about it. We had our leadership retreat last week, and thank you all for allowing us and the elders and uh, the rest of our leadership team to go. Um, But I had gotten back from that retreat, uh, not really well rested, a little bit tired. I looked at my calendar, and I saw my meetings that were coming up throughout the week, And for some reason, jury duty was not on my calendar. And so here I was, uh, just about to go to bed on Tuesday night, and I'm watching a movie. And in that movie, there's a court scene. And in the court scene, I see a juror. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be, you know, a juror uh, soon. I'm like, wait a minute, when am I going to be a juror? Let me look at my calendar really quick. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I woke up, I said, I woke Jess up, I said, honey, jury duty. And she goes, no. And we jump and we run to the kitchen where our mail is. We find the, the letter where I've gotten summoned for jury duty and I've, I've missed it. I've missed jury duty. And so Google um, is helpful <laughs> sometimes. And I Google, what happens if I miss jury duty? The first words I saw were, were arrested, and I panicked. The next words I saw were thousands of dollars of fines and penalties, and I just have this anxiety, this cup, and I'm like, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. You're going to have to visit me in prison, and I'm already, like, telling her, and I, how are we going to, what are we going to tell the kids? Your daddy's a good guy, but he just made some mistakes, like every other parent that, you know, and, like, how am I going to explain this to the church, and what if they see it in the papers, and I don't have time to explain it, and they just think I did something really bad, and this affects everything, and I'm just having these, and I, like, I just had like a, a short little panic attack. And so I call, like, I know no one's there at 1030 at night, but I call the Pitt County court office, like, please, like, listen, my name's Ben Tugwell. I live in this street and I, yeah, my wife is Jessica. I got the, uh, please don't arrest me. Here's what happened. I missed the, and I'm just really, really apologetic. And then, uh, no, of course, no one calls me back. So I go to bed with like, I'm like chest pains. I'm like, oh gosh, the sheriff's going to come in the middle of the night. My kids are going to wake up. I'm going to be gone. You know, I'm just, I'm just paranoid about what's happened because of Google. And um, so I wake up the next morning, call him again, call twice the next morning, call two different people, leave two different messages. And then finally, like 45 minutes or so later, I get this call back and this guy says, Mr. Tugwell, we got your messages. Um, <laughs> thank you for calling. Um, just let us know when you can come in again. I'm like, that's it? That's it? I had all this worry for them. So I'm scheduled in November for jury duty. So when you see me in November, remind me of jury duty, okay? Now, I tell you that story because if I had a different posture and I called and said, hey, look, I just want to let y'all know I'm scheduled for jury duty. I don't want to come. Um, I scheduled for jury. I just think that's going to be a waste of time. And I had a posture of not real sorrow, not real brokenness over what I've done. What do you think would happen? I would have gotten arrested. Probably would have gotten fined. What caused them to give me grace in those moments? 
It was genuine sorrow. It was genuine remorse over what had happened. And so there's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And that's what I want to show you in the text this morning. The difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly remorse, worldly repentance versus godly remorse, godly repentance. And so to bring you up to speed in what's happening in 1 Corinthians 7, it helps if we remember the sequence of events. Things were going badly among the Christians in Corinth. And in an attempt to get them back on track, Paul makes a quick, unplanned visit that only seemed to make things worse. Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, as a painful visit. And after, this, after the failure of this visit, Paul decided not to visit Corinth again in person, but rather he sends another pastor that he's walked alongside of, Titus, and he sends Titus to give the church at Corinth this strong letter of rebuke. And as you can imagine, you can't, you, the last visit that Paul has with them is this painful visit. He doesn't want to see them again because he doesn't want to stir up more problems, but he sends Titus to give this letter that he's written. Some say it could be a letter in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Some say it could be before 1st Corinthians. But somewhere in there, he wrote this letter and he thinks, okay, this could go really good or it could go way worse. And so he's got this anxiety. Let me see how this is going to go. And so Titus comes back after they received this letter. They would have read that with Titus there. He comes back to report to Paul how everything went. And Paul is encouraged to know that it went better than expected. That although Paul gave this strong correctional letter, that the people received it in a way that caused them to grow in Christ that corrected the way they lived and then propelled them to find their joy in Christ. And so here in, in, in 2 Corinthians 7, it's interesting the way that Paul writes this, uh, this situation that's happening with him in the church of Corinth. He says it in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8 and 9. He says, I didn't regret writing this to you, although I did regret it. Meaning, Paul doesn't enjoy being confrontational. However, he thought it was necessary to be confrontational to the church of Corinth because they were in such a spiritual mess. And although he wrote a letter that was somewhat harsh, at least it put them back on track to follow Christ. And so Paul then continues this train of thought in verse 10. He says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, for godly grief, produces a repentance that leads to what? Salvation, without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces what? Death. So you have godly grief produces salvation. Worldly grief produces death. Some of your translations might say, instead of godly grief, it says godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. What is godly grief? Godly grief, he says, it, it leads to you abiding in Christ more than you did before. That's his point. Godly grief takes you further away from the gospel and ultimately destroys you. 
or, or, or worldly, yeah, worldly grief destroys you. So let me unpack the difference, what these two really look like practically. Um, let me do that by showing you one example in Scripture where you see sort of worldly grief and godly grief sort of uh, work at the same time. Judas in the Bible, whether you've been to church your whole life or you've never been to church at all and this is your first time here, um, you have probably heard of Judas. Who is Judas? Everyone says Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. That is a true statement. However, isn't it interesting we say that Judas betrayed Jesus and but also didn't all the other disciples betray Jesus as well? If you're familiar with the story, I mean, you think about Jesus right before he went to the cross. He, he looks at Peter and he tells Peter, look, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And what happened? He denied him three times before the rooster crowed. And so you have these two characters, or, or, or really Judas and the rest of the disciples, all betrayed, uh, betrayed Jesus. But what did Judas do differently with his grief? with his sorrow, with his betrayal, with his sin. Well, after realizing that he, Judas, had betrayed an innocent man, he was seized with remorse. He went into the temple and he threw money on the ground. And then he went and did what? Hanged himself. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Judas was a man whose grief over sin was not combined with faith. Judas had been with Jesus this whole time, but he didn't realize the full weight of what Jesus could actually offer, and that's forgiveness. Peter, on the other hand, was different. Peter had remorse over his sin, but what did Peter do when he sinned, he ran to Jesus. What about Jesus when, he, when Peter heard word that Jesus had risen from the grave? Where did he run? He ran toward where Jesus would be to see Jesus. And it led Peter to this repentant life. In fact, if you remember in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls upon the church and he empowers Peter to preach the gospel, what does Peter preach about? He preaches about repentance. He preaches about what it means to grieve over your sin and what does it mean to get your life back with the Lord. And because of that, this message is like one none have ever heard before. 3,000 people repent and believe in the gospel in Acts chapter 2. What made Judas, though, so dangerous is that Judas is a man who grieved over his sin without faith in Christ. And I would argue that there's nothing more dangerous than grieving over your sin without faith in Christ. Here's why. What do we do when we try to grieve without Christ? When we grieve without Christ, we typically try to handle that grief or that sorrow or that remorse ourselves. Which means what we do when we do that ourselves, we try to turn to things that ease the pain or hide the shame. Maybe we turn to substances. Maybe we turn to relationships, pornography. Maybe we turn to food. Maybe we turn to other people to try and fix us. But we typically turn to whatever temporarily indulges the heart 
And this becomes a very brutal cycle because what happens, those things never make us feel less in pain. They never bring less shame to our life. In fact, those things that we run to, they actually bring more guilt and more shame and just compounding the problem. And this is why Paul says, listen, worldly grief, it only leads to death. In other words, keeping sin in your life without it coming to the light will destroy you. Freedom happens when things are only brought in the light. So the difference between worldly grief and godly grief is actually found of what the grief is over. And, and really, this, this tension of worldly grief and godly grief is, is really the difference between regret and repentance. What's regret? Well, regret is when, when someone has regret, they wish something different happened because the situation they're in right now. Whereas repentance is they want to get right with God. Very different. Regret is focusing on yourself. Repentance is focusing on God. So if you have godly grief, it means that you are thankful you are called out of your sin. Even if you get caught, you're thankful because you recognize that the sin in your life would destroy you. Worldly grief is mad because it got caught. Godly grief is thankful that it's set free. Godly grief means that you get to be set free from the bondage of sin, which is better than losing the thing that you thought you couldn't live without. Think about the spouse who catches the husband on the computer looking at things that he shouldn't look at. What's his response to his spouse? Does he say, what are you doing looking at my computer? Or is there brokenness? I mean, sometimes our first response might be defensive when we get caught in our sin. But if you're truly broken over your sin, you will not stay in a posture of defense. Over time, if you're truly caught in your sin, you have, if you have genuine, genuine godly sorrow, over time you're going to be humbled. Over time, actually, you're going to be thankful that you got caught. Because by getting caught, you know that at least what you got caught in has been brought to the light. And you can be healed. And you recognize that being healed is God's love for you. Charles Spurgeon communicates this very well in this statement. He says, In repentance, there is a bitter sweetness or a sweet bitterness. What shall I call it? Of which the more you have, the better it is for you. I can truly say that I hardly know a diviner joy than to lay my head on my heavenly Father's bosom to say, Father, I have sinned, but thou hast forgiven me, and oh, do I love thee. Friends, if God allows you to continue in a pattern of open rebellion without you getting caught out of your sin, without you being caught, you should be afraid. If you're never caught out of sin, if you're never caught and you're just growing calloused in your sin, you should be worried. Why? Because godly sorrow leads to repentance. There must be brokenness in our life over our sin. If there's no godly grief or godly sorrow, there's no real belief. And what Paul is going to do here now is he shows these two very 
different view. Okay, you got godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. What he's going to do now is going to show the church of Corinth, okay, I've seen godly sorrow in you because, not because you're walking around melancholy, but I've seen now the outcome of godly sorrow. Pick it up in verse 11. He says this, For see what earnestness this godly grief or sorrow has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves of what indignation What fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us may be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Now, if you've been tracking with us throughout the series, you might remember uh, the two situations. Paul was referring to two different situations that he's mentioned before. And one is about a, a situation where a man, uh, either in the church or in Corinth, outside the church, that is spreading false things about Paul. He's making false accusations about Paul. And so Paul's talking about that one man here. And then also he talks about a believer that was once in the church and now has sinned, but is trying to come back to the church because he's been restored. And that's in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter two. So Paul's referring to here when he when he talks about these two situations, he's talking about those those two men. But Paul, as he's writing, even though he talks about that the bulk of the first the first part of the letter, Paul's reminding them, yes, I did address those situations. However, that's not the primary reason why you are getting this letter. You are receiving this letter, Church of Corinth. Because I'm trying to show you how you've been made new in Christ by the gospel. And I'm also trying to show you now that part of you growing in Christ has been one of the things that God sovereignly put in your life to help you grow in Christ is sorrow, is remorse over your sin. And by that remorse over your sin, Paul then lists out all the ways that he's seen that in their life. There's an eagerness There's a fear over sin. There's a longing. There's a zeal for God that he's never seen in them before. So Paul's saying, yeah, I wrote some harsh things to you and it brought you sorrow. However, Paul's saying, I can tell that the sorrow that felt over your sin was genuine because it led to life change. It leads to a change of direction. I remember when I was in college, I had um, an RA that, we began to uh, read the Bible together. And uh, I didn't know much about scripture. He was, he was a lot more uh, theologically grounded than I was. And so, but I knew how to, I know a little bit about how to play the guitar. And he didn't know how to play the guitar, but he wanted to be a worship leader one day. And so, you know, I told him what you need to know to be a worship leader, which is the chords G, C, and D, and then you'll know every worship song possible, um, and occasionally E minor and maybe a seventh chord if you want to be really fancy. Um, and so I began to play guitar. I would teach him how to play guitar. He would teach me the Bible, and that was like the trade-off. And so I would show him. We'd do a little guitar lesson, you know, and then he would do uh, Bible study with me. And I remember asking him, uh, by the way, he became a worship leader later on. So I mean, if this whole preaching thing doesn't work out, maybe that's what I'll do. Um, But I remember asking him, hey, Aaron, what 
in my life do you see where I need to grow in? And he had this way of just being super honest, but really encouraging at the same time. He was just like the, the nicest guy. He said, Ben, he said, you're really sarcastic. I'm like, oh, really? I was like, and it was part of me, I was like, you're sarcastic. I wanted to get back at it. But, um, but I, and he said, yeah, you come off passive aggressive. And, and I was like, well, can you give me examples? And he told me like certain examples of where I was toward him and how he's seen with other people. And man, it just destroyed me. I just remember being like so disappointed in myself and like, this is how people see me. I'm kind of this jerk that people run into and I'm this way and like, oh, maybe people were avoiding me. Maybe that's why I don't have a girlfriend. Like I'm just starting to tear myself apart. And I remember like that week, it just brought this sorrow like this remorse, this brokenness. And then over time, as I began to kind of walk and as I taught myself, like I would want to be sarcastic in certain situations. I would like want to make fun of something someone said because like they were doing something stupid and I just wanted to say like, that's stupid, right? And I would catch myself almost doing it. And I was like, oh, Aaron said, I'm like this. I need to stop doing that. I need to fight this in my life. And then over time, instead of being passive aggressive, I would just be honest about something I was really feeling or be more transparent about my thoughts and my heart. And over time, I began to see God using him saying that in my life. And then about six months later, we're having a Bible study. He's like, Ben, you you remember when I told you you were like, and he broke down the situation. He says, man, you've grown so much. You're not like that anymore. You don't talk that way anymore. And you can ask me right now, do you think that week of sorrow was worth it? For me, absolutely. I do that over and over and over again. Why? Because it's godly sorrow. Because it led to salvation. It led to me growing closer to the Lord. Repentance, that's what it looks like. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. And so it continues on. And what I love this transition here between Paul, he's saying, Paul, I've not just seen this as Paul. But other people have seen this as well in you, Church of Corinth. He says it in starting verse 13. He says, we're comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because the spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you receive him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Now, if you read This little section of scripture, it seems like the church of Corinth is this great church. Like for for me, like at integrity, I just want to say I am blessed to be one of the pastors here. I'm blessed to be paid to do this job. I meet with other pastors and I sometimes hear horror stories about how badly they're treated. And I've actually served in churches on staff where I've seen the staff treated badly. I've been treated badly in other churches. And I think there's this assumption that pastors always get negative feedback and they always get complaining and like really bad hate emails. I've gotten some of those, but I will say most of the time, I am greatly encouraged by all of you. 
Most of the time I get texts, man, thank you for bringing the word, brother. I love you. Hey, just want to email, just want to say thank you. Thank you and the elders and our elders get encouraged. Man, we just get encouraged a lot here. And it's, and it's awesome. And most of the time, I mean, we're just thankful for the positive reinforcement that we get to continue to preach the gospel in the way that we do here at Integrity. And the Lord has built something great here. Not the greatest church ever. We definitely have our issues, but the Lord has built something great here and we're thankful. But as I read what Paul's saying here, it, it makes it hard to believe. Like, because Paul is communicating this to the church of Corinth. He's like, I am rejoicing in all of you. My, my buddy Titus, who's a pastor, he rejoices in what he's seeing in you. Paul says, I have great confidence in you. And this is odd because it doesn't seem like a great church. We often think of the church of Corinth, we think of it as, as something that's burdensome. Not a church we want to visit, not a church we want to join, definitely not a church you want to pastor. Why? Well, they turned their back on Paul multiple times. Paul's the one who spent 18 months with them, sharing the gospel with them, helping them grow in Christ. And then, then as he moves away, they're like, yeah, I don't know if Paul's for real. I don't know if the gospel he preaches is for real. And a majority of the people believe that in the church of Corinth. There's people then that deny the resurrection of Christ. And these people knew someone who actually knew Christ. And there's a big number of people that are swayed by false teachers that deny the resurrection of Christ. And Paul has to write to them, how can you deny the resurrection of Christ? I mean, it just seems like little kids leading a church. I mean, later on in, in, second, in 1 Corinthians, there's a man who has a sexual relationship with one of his family members and no one in the church is saying anything about it. There's sexual promiscuous sin throughout the church and it's almost celebrated. There's people that get drunk on communion wine in the church of Corinth. There are people who look down on people who are poor. There's, it's full of racism. It's not a church you would want to attend. It's not a church you would want to join. But Paul, as he looks at this church in Titus, as they look at this church they see something very different. They say, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. He says, Titus, as he visited with you, he was refreshed and he has joy. What did they see? Because everything I've read in 1 Corinthians, I'm like, I would not be refreshed by pastoring these people. What did they see? Here's what they saw godly sorrow. They saw godly sorrow over all the things that Corinth had done against their God, against the gospel, against siding with the false teachers. And as Paul has written this letter to the church of Corinth, correcting all of this, these issues, what did the church, what did Paul see in the church of Corinth? That the letter set in their hearts and it led to a sorrow over their sin that eventually led to a life change and a change of direction. Here's what they saw, an authentic church. That's what brings thanksgiving to these two pastors who hear these reports from how they're doing. And I tell you, there's something beautiful about an authentic church. An authentic church is really one that confesses sin and there's a culture of confession. 
Sometimes I think we as a church, we can be afraid to confess sin because we think by confessing sin, we're going to be a burden to someone else. But here's the thing, believers, maturing believers, they are actually encouraged when sin is confessed. When they see other people confess sin, it brings them joy because they see only God can do that. There are two things, as I talk with our elders and our our pastors here at Integrity, there's two things that encourage us the most. One is genuine joy in Christ. Two is genuine sorrow over sin. As elders, we marvel all the time at this when we see this at work at Integrity. We are amazed at how often sin is confessed in community. My small group, for instance, we have a good diverse group of men and ladies, young and old, married and single. And oftentimes what we'll do when we get together, we don't just do Bible studies at, at small groups here in Integrity. We, sometimes we, uh, we eat together, we play games together, we'll pray together, we'll hold each other accountable. And so my group, we split up, um, guys and gals. Some of the ladies go in one room, the guys go in another room. And then we begin to just share what's going on in our lives and we pray for each other. And Sometimes it starts off like there's a me or one guy might start off with just, I'm just really busy, you know, just pray for me, I'm busy, and this kind of like that kind of typical generic leave me alone prayer. Um, and then later on, like somebody is going to share something that's going on in their life that's like heavy and weighty. Maybe it's about something they did look at on the computer. Maybe it's about a motive, an impure motive that's driving them. Maybe it's about any type of, or some type of greed in their life. And it just keeps, and and they begin to be really like almost scary transparent. And what does that do for me when I give the cheap prayer? I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I'm convicted now because he shared that and I'm actually struggling the same thing. I just didn't want y'all to know it. But now it's brought to the light and now we can work together and now we can pray for each other. And man, sometimes like, it gets so transparent, like, I'm, like, a little worried. Like, I'm, like, okay, is this legal? Can I, like, listen to this and not, like, do y'all know one of our elders is a police officer? Like, I'm a little worried, right? So I was like, do, did I leave my wallet, like, on the counter? Because I don't know if I trust these guys. They're, like, too transparent and, like, they've got a lot of junk going on in their life. Like, I'm a little worried, right? But I love the transparency because what does it do? It brings things to light. And that's where the gospel begins to shine in their life. And there's this authenticity that I've seen here at Integrity that I've really never seen in any other church I've been a part of. Now, I know there's many other churches that has authenticity, but I've never been a part of one that does. And I think that all of the elders here would say the same thing, that we want this culture of confession that we have here to continue. And here at Integrity, we say it like this, liars don't have real friends. And, And by that, we mean when you hide things, People just love the false version that you portray to be, not the person who you really are. Because by hiding things, you haven't given anyone the chance to get to know the real you. But here's the incredible thing about God's grace and godly sorrow and genuine repentance. People get to see the real you and they get to love you in spite of who you are. And then you get to experience God's forgiveness and God's love for you in spite of who you really are. And then on top of that, other believers are inspired and challenged to also be transparent. Most of the time when I've seen believers 
bring things to the light and they share their sin, they share their struggles. I see other people right behind them do the same thing. You know what? I'm struggling with that too. I didn't even think about it until you mentioned it. You know, you'll see that happen all the time. And I, I believe that transparency is a contagious thing. It's a very healthy thing. If, if a whole church could get on board and be transparent in this way. And the tragedy is, the tragedy is that most churches in the United States, this is so foreign of an idea. But it's interesting that it's foreign in most churches in the United States. However, it's something that's talked about frequently as the DNA of the church and what the church should be. You see Paul talk about it here in 2 Corinthians. And you also see John when he talks to scattered, suffering believers in 1 John. Look at what he says, the way he opens the letter in 1 John. 1 John 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, with God, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another. See what he says? The, the confession that leads to fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, if we're walking around hiding, that's what he's saying, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We don't know the gospel. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And the word is not in us. You think a culture of confession needs to happen based on that text? I do. Think about James. James is dealing with brand new converts, former Jews who've now become Christians, and they face some of the worst, most heinous persecution that you could ever face. What does James tell this church about confession? This is what he says. James 5, 19 through 20. My brother, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He's trying to create this culture of confession. And so this morning, if this, we see this in the text, and it just seems so real that godly sorrow Confession, brokenness over sin is such a New Testament idea. And it was always built into the fabric of what a New Testament church is and should be. Why wouldn't we want the same thing here? We should. We absolutely should. And it's not just something that I'm saying to the corporate body. It's something that I'm saying to individuals in this room today, including myself. And so this morning, if you were here and you're not a Christian, we're glad that you're here. Maybe this morning your confession would be to the Lord is that you're not a Christian. And that is okay if you want to confess that to the Lord. And if you have any questions for us, the elders of this church or the leaders or anyone here, we want to be able to answer any questions that you might have about the Bible, about who is Jesus. And it's our hope that you would repent of your sins and trust Christ today. If you're here this morning and you've Never confess your sins. Maybe you've never become a Christian, but you want to. This morning, we're gonna ask you, we're gonna invite you to ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins, to give you that godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And to do that, you have to believe that Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. 
and he died the death that we deserved. And he paid the price that covers our sins. And if we believe in him and we confess our sins, believing that his payment was sufficient, he will save us. And so this morning, I invite you to do that. If that's you this morning, if you're here this morning, and sadly, this might be a good number of people. Maybe you think you are a Christian. However, there's no godly sorrow in your life. There's no brokenness over your sin. Maybe you've been hiding sin for a really long time, but there's no brokenness over it. Maybe you're just calloused. Let me just challenge you. If that's you, be concerned. If there's no brokenness, there may not be a genuine faith. And so this morning, I I urge you, that you, to ask the Lord to give you brokenness over your sin, to ask you, the Lord, to give you godly sorrow that will lead to repentance. Not worldly sorrow that will bring more guilt and shame and defeat and destruction in your life, but godly sorrow that gives you joy in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, but there's sin in your life and you've not yet confessed it, let me remind you that this Integrity Church strives to be a, a safe place where there is a culture of confession here and we wanna grow in that way. And let me also remind you more, moreover of the grace of God, that if we confess our sins, as we just read in First John, he is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so this morning, wherever you are in the spectrum, whether you're a non-believer or you're a believer in Christ, may you ask the Lord this morning, seriously, ask the Lord to give you a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. God help us. Let us pray.